Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from our guest speaker. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Jay Boyd. I have the tremendous privilege of uh, working for Connie Maxwell Children's Ministries. And uh, we don't take these opportunities lightly. Uh, we've got three of us from our team here today. Um, we love the fact that Gateway, uh, for, for the leadership here to arrange their Sunday around um, putting a spotlight on a global and local need, uh, the plight of the orphan, the fatherless, children in foster care, um, kids who need help, someone to stand in the gap. Uh, we truly appreciate uh, this church for arranging a Sunday for there to be an emphasis on this. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Uh, we're going to unpack uh, this scripture. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, it, it might be up on the screen as well. Um, but this is a parable. If you've grown up in church or if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard this before. And I think uh, it's always good to have a reminder. Um, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel daily. Uh, it's so easy to drift from it. Um, even on mornings when we're going to church. In fact, I think that's the time when Satan can get at, at us uh, the most, is when we're taking our families to church. Anybody understand how that goes? So um, <clears throat> let's do this. I wanna pray. Uh, I just wanna pray. I just feel led to do that right now. I didn't do it in the first service. Uh, we already heard a fantastic prayer. And by the way, I'm in a lot of churches and um, this, y'all are very blessed, the worship Man, it was so good. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to worship. I was preparing uh, in the last, um, before I preached the last time, and I didn't get to hear it, and so I'm so glad I came out uh, this morning to, to be a part of, of worship and not just staying in the back. But um, let's pray. Not by might, not by force, but by your spirit, Lord. By your spirit. Amen. Um, it's been probably six or seven years ago. I was uh, driving on the interstate uh, to work early in the morning. This is before we lived in South Carolina. We've been here a few years now. Love living here. Love living in Greenwood. Um, love serving alongside brothers and sisters in the state. But before I was here, we lived in a suburb of Birmingham. And I was driving to work and was almost involved in a pretty, what looked like was gonna be a significant car accident. Um, but I was, I was not the one involved. There was a, a large truck and a car that had come into each other in a blind spot and they both uh, were in the accident and one of the cars ended up turned on its side. And all of us on the interstate behind it who, who nearly were in the accident but were not involved uh, came to a screeching halt. And within like 30 seconds, I don't know that any of us had actually really taken any action other than probably like hyperventilating and taking our seatbelt off and kind of thinking, what should we do? And out of the corner of my eye, I, I see on the other lanes going the opposite direction with 50 yards worth of grass and median uh, in between us, there's this gentleman in a suit sprinting across the median and he arrives at the scene before any of us uh, did anything. And it wasn't because he was just Superman, although I, he really looked like Superman running across the, the median. It was because we could have responded sooner, but we didn't. 
There were dozens of cars right there stopped, all three lanes blocked by these cars, and we're kind of just in shock. And I arrived. Now, eventually I got out. As soon as I see this guy, I'm like, well, I got to do that too. You know, you jump in, right? And so I got up and we helped him. Thankfully, no one was seriously harmed. Um, there was a lot of traffic backed up for several hours, but no one was seriously harmed. And I went on my day and I got to the office and I remember talking to a young girl who had just graduated college and she had a psychology minor. And I told her, I said, yeah, there was, she said, there's a wreck. Did you get stuck in the traffic? I said, no, but I almost did. I was so close to it that I was able to get around it pretty quickly. Uh, but I, and I was explaining what happened. I said, yeah, I was kind of embarrassed. This guy from the other side of the interstate arrived before I did. And we all just kind of froze. There was dozens of cars and we just kind of sat there for a minute. And then we helped and she goes, well, Jay, that's called the bystander effect, bystander syndrome. It's actually quite common. And she told me about it. So I looked it up and it's this idea and, and there's been research done on this and I'm not a psychologist. I didn't, you know, I've not gone way down deep in this rabbit hole so someone can fact check me on it. But if you look it up, you'll, you'll read about this and research that's been done where at times of crisis or emergencies, Sometimes when there's a crowd, people don't immediately respond. Maybe it's a car accident. Maybe there's someone choking on something. Maybe there's a fire that's broken out. I mean, for whatever reason. And so in the research that's been done, there was oftentimes when they would ask later, they would simulate something and, and try to find out what's behind this. Why do people not respond sooner? And so they, there was three common things that would come up. And one is that uh, they thought someone else would. Well, someone else will handle that. There's dozens of people around. Surely somebody will get to it. Others, they didn't realize what they were witnessing at you know, was actually a crisis until later. Maybe whatever it was that was taking place didn't immediately look like that person needed help. And then another reason, uh, they just doubted their ability to actually help. They doubted themselves. We're gonna read this, this text and we'll revisit this illustration later because I'm convinced that when there's millions of orphans in the world globally and when there's uh, hundreds of thousands of kids in the foster care system and then you look more scaled, you look at our state, 4,000 kids in foster care and then even in your county, several hundred, we'll get into the actual numbers in the, the luncheon, um, but there's certainly a need and it's not an overstatement to say that it's a crisis when there's this many kids who need help and there's this many families available. And so today is not, is not a, you need to do this or you need to do that, that's not what today is. But I don't think it's an understatement to say that there's a crisis, but it doesn't feel like a crisis. It just doesn't feel that way. In Luke 25, uh, 10, 25 through 37, We'll unpack this, and, and I'm not going to allege that there's the bystander effect taking place here. It's clearly not. It's just willful uh, neglect of, a, of an obvious need from one person to another. Um, so sometimes that's the case too. But we'll revisit that illustration later because I think it's, it's warranted. But let's first look at what does it mean to be a good neighbor? What does it mean to be a good neighbor? Who counts as our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And then he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells a story, a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus finished the parable, and he asked the law expert in verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. There's so much from the parable, and we'll get to that. But I think it would be negligent to just, to just rush in that and, and, and skip the, the dialogue that takes place between the law expert and Jesus at the beginning. It kind of frames the way I believe we should think about passages like this that are quite challenging. So the story starts with a question. Law expert says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knows this guy's not asking sincerely. This isn't like someone who's eagerly, you know, just hanging on every word of Jesus' teachings. So he knows this guy's up to something. Jesus says, well, you're the, you're the expert in the law. Why don't you tell me? How do you read it? The man quotes scripture. This is, gentleman was well-educated, Jewish heritage, probably had lots of scripture in the first five books, the Old Testament memorized. Uh, but he says, he quotes uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.8. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> so Jesus replies with this. Yes, do this and you will live. Has anyone besides Jesus done that perfectly? No. But we've seen, we've seen something like this before, a little different scenario. The rich young ruler asked that question. <clears throat> he asked the question, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? And in this uh, instance, in Mark's account, uh, you know, there's a dialogue that takes place, and Jesus responds with several of the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler says, well, yes, I've done all these since I was a boy, which is kind of laughable, <laughs> because if you read that account, there's no way he did all that since he was a boy. I mean, he probably tried, but like, he's going he's gonna to break them. You're, we've all broken one of the Ten Commandments, some of them hundreds of times. He's like, yeah, I've done all that since I was a boy. And, and I love Jesus' response in Mark's account specifically. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Kind of like a bless your heart, but like, but like more sincere, you know? Like, it's like he has compassion for someone who just totally doesn't get what's happening. So he says, you know what? Uh, there's something you lack. He knows he's very wealthy. Um, he says, go sell all your possessions 
And we know the story, many of you, he, he was not willing to do that, at least not at that time, maybe later perhaps, but, but he, he's not willing to do that. That was the one thing that hit him square in the eyes that he was not going to do. And, uh, you know, I, I think in this account, when the rich young ruler says, yes, I've done all these things, he doesn't see that he's sick in need of a physician. And in Luke 10, when Jesus tells the law expert that he must uphold the law perfectly to inherit eternal life, the only proper response should be, but what if, what about the times when I haven't done these things? That should be the only response for any of us in a situation like that. This, this gentleman was deceived into thinking that because he was a good person, there's a term for this, uh, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism, this idea that it's, it's kind of clothed in Christianity, but this idea that if I'm a good person, if I'm moral, if I do good works, then God will owe me salvation. When in fact, that is absolutely not the gospel. It is completely contrary to the gospel, which is that because of Christ's work, because of what he's done on our behalf, because of his love and mercy to us as sinners, we get to stand before a holy God. That's the only reason, not because of what we've done good, but yet what he's done on our behalf is what drives us and compels us to stop and help someone in need or to move into vulnerable populations and, and be sacrificially giving of our time or resources. And so we have, to, we have to wrestle with that and know that this parable is not about God's mercy. It's about God's, it's, it's not about, excuse me, it's about God's mercy, not moralism. This is, this is not a message to try to get you to do some action so that you'll be looked at favorably. That was sealed on the cross. So relax, and now, now we can open our hearts and, and allow for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us as believers to work and compel us to what this might mean for us today. Loving our neighbor is rooted in our love for Christ. So moralism won't save us, but God's mercy will. And so this parable shows us at least three things about loving our neighbor, and that's how you know that I'm Baptist is because there's three points to this next part. <laughs> so the first of these is uh, loving our neighbor does not have boundaries. I think we see that clearly here. The law expert says, who's my neighbor? Which his question reveals that he's trying to limit his compassion to certain types of people. He wants his neighbor to be you know, those he's comfortable associating with, maybe those who are in the same social class or racial class, right? It's like, he, it's, it's as if he's looking for Jesus to say, well, I'm glad you asked. You know, your neighbor would qualify as anyone who's uh, to your left or right of your primary residence, who's a Jewish male between 18 and 25 years old. It's like these boxes that he needs to be checked off so that he can attain this command. In the parable, we see that the Samaritan is the one who helps the Jewish man along the road, and it's incredible, like Jesus set this up brilliantly to teach us, you know, that, that you know, Jews and Samaritans were, were enemies. They culturally despised one another. They were the least likely person. The least likely person in this scenario who should have stopped and helped was the Samaritan. If anything, you would expect that gentleman to pass by and kick or make a snarky comment or, or spit at him, but instead the Samaritan has compassion. And we notice this too, the Levite and the priest who first had the opportunity to help, 
they pass by. And this is what, what we really need to, to, to look at here. The Levite and the priest had all the biblical knowledge, all the ethical principles, and all the racial affinity to the man in the road, and yet it wasn't enough. Matthew 5, 46 through 47, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? So it's not enough, we, we see here, it's not enough to just love those or, or, or have compassion on those who look like us or think like us or vote like us or who are just kind of easier to, to help. This parable reveals that Jesus requires Christians to show love to everyone all the time, without exception. The second thing we see here, loving our neighbor will demand, it, it will cost us, it will demand our time and our energy and our resources. And in this parable, we, we see at least seven ways, uh, at least seven ways that the Samaritan uh, gives of these things, his, his energy and his time and his resources to help this gentleman dead on the, half dead on the side of the road. And I'm borrowing some of these, these thoughts here from a gentleman who wrote a book many years ago. The book is not new. His, his name is Tim Keller. He a, a, was a former pastor. So I want to be upfront about he, his intellectual giftedness is what's guiding this part. But he, he draws out that, you know, this, this gentleman risks his own personal safety you know, the Jericho Road was, was dangerous. And I think that's important. This is where someone like a scholar like him can illuminate something in the text that I would not have known. But apparently, so this, this path from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 30 mile stretch with lots of switchbacks. Jerusalem was way above sea level, Jericho way below. Now I've never been to this area, but, but I'm depending on his, his uh, uh, thoughts here and his studies. So if you've ever been to the mountains, though, you know from going way above sea level to way below, like lots of switchbacks, it was known as the bloody path or the bloody way because it was dangerous. You got to imagine to go from one elevation to another, there's no paved roads at this time. It's a very, the, the climate and atmosphere, lots of crags. And so it had, had a reputation. It was a dangerous journey. It was often known as kind of a, a place where robbers or, or just people with cruel intentions would jump out and attack someone because they were more vulnerable because of the way the landscape was. And then they could make a quick getaway without being seen. It wasn't like a long stretch of road where somebody could be easily spotted. And so in this scenario, lest we think, oh, well, you know, I would have stopped. Surely I would stop if some, if, if it, think of it this way. Someone's half dead crying for help in a dark alley on a really rough area of town in a high crime rate area. You might not immediately rush over to the dark back alley behind the dumpster and check it out. You might wait till there's the Calvary to come in or you might pick up your phone. So it's, you got to put it into a little bit of context here. So, so what this man does is he risks his own personal safety by stopping. The second thing, he, become, he completely destroys his schedule. And this is a big one for me. I got to confess, uh, I like my, my schedule. You know, I like to kind of follow it. Um, and I have to oftentimes, you know, giving of my time and stepping away from the computer when someone needs to talk at the office and showing that what they need perhaps is more important than me responding to the email or whatever it is that's in front of me. Some of you who are task-oriented, 
Uh, this is a big one. This guy totally destroyed his schedule, disrupted his trip to help this gentleman. Third, he becomes dirty and bloody through his personal involvement as he cares for the victim. This is a, a I've never been at the scene, you know, as a first responder where someone has is, is, uh, been brutally, uh, you know, I, perhaps an EMT, uh, someone who works for the fire department. If there's those in the room who are first responders, uh, you, could, you could relate to this or understand this better than most. But uh, you can only imagine that if someone's half dead and has been beaten or bludgeoned, just their invo- your involvement in helping them, it's going to get messy. There's going to be blood and spit, and it's going to be nasty to get that individual up on his animal. He gives up his oil and wine. The fourth thing, gives up oil and wine to care for this gentleman's wounds. These are, are commodities. What if he needs them later? What if, what if he's going to need that, but he's giving them up to help this gentleman? He gives up his donkey or his animal and chooses to walk the rest of the journey. It's not a fun journey. No paved roads. 30-mile stretch, now he's walking it. He gives up his finances to pay for his, the, the hotel for the victim. I mean, totally going above the call of duty here, right? Couldn't you do like three of these things and feel pretty good about yourself? <laughs> and then, this one, this is amazing. He promises a return visit. Jesus sets up this scenario where not only does he like go to the innkeeper, say, give him a room and pay for it, he says, Whatever help this guy needs, any medical bills, whatever, I'll cover it. You know, I'll come back through, check on him, and I'm going to pay the debt that's incurred to a stranger. If we're expecting to love our neighbors the way Jesus sets up this scenario, it's going to require our time and our energy and our resources. Third thing is loving our neighbor is not optional. Uh, we see this over and over, and really this is not isolated. You could point to, uh, in fact, a couple thousand. There was someone who, who took the time, um, I wouldn't recommend doing this, but he was working on, a, I think, a, a doctoral degree, and so he went through the Bible and he used an exacto knife, and there were over 2,000 occurrences where the Lord speaks of his love and, and mercy for vulnerable populations, or he speaks of how Christians are to respond and care for those who are in need. And he's found over 2,000 verses, so he took an exacto knife and cut them out. And then uh, the point he would make is he, was, he held this Bible up and said, this is how so many churches or so many Christians live their life. It's as if it's just a Bible with a bunch of holes in it. The parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that mercy is a true test of Christian faith. And this isn't an isolated example Matthew 25, 31 through 46, we see Jesus distinguish between those who have true faith and those who don't. And one of the things he really points to in that passage, he says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. He's saying that a life poured out in deeds of mercy and compassion is is one of the inevitable outcomes of, of being a follower of Christ. And so it's one before the other, right? It's because of what God has done in our life, we're gonna feel compelled to help. Now, here's the reality, and I'm, I'm in this with you. I'm not, I'm not speaking as uh, an authority on this. I'm not speaking from a position of, uh, I've got this stuff figured out. Um, y'all, I, I grapple with this. I work at Connie Maxwell Children's Ministries, and so if anyone could maybe feel like they've set themselves up, they'd be off the hook, Perhaps I could fit into that category, and I often don't. 
I so easily can drift into my needs, my time, my schedule, my, my money. Can anyone else relate to that here today, this morning? And I think one of the challenges of living, I mean, we live in an incredible country. Thank God we live in the United States of America. And yet one of our challenges, as flawed as we are, I'm not trying to get political here, of course we're not a perfect country, but man, we're, we've got it really good. It doesn't take a lot of international travel to developing countries to be reminded of, of the infrastructure and the systems and, and government that's not corrupt. And I know some would want to debate that, but I'm just saying, go travel and you'll see. There's, there's a lot that we benefit from that we take for granted. And one of the things that I think is a challenge for American Christians even as we move into a postmodern culture, and I believe we absolutely have, is we're kind of cocooned, right? There's a quote here, I'll read it from a pastor that uh, used to pastor in New York City. He said, the comparative comfort most of us face can isolate us in a fictitious world where suffering is difficult to find. But the isolation, this isolation is fragile because suffering surrounds us. We need an accurate view of the world in which we live. We need to see that instead of living on an island of ease, we need to live on the Jericho Road. Our daily rhythms, think about your week. I, I, I don't wanna speak for everyone in here, but I have to imagine that, that in this area of the state and with many of you in the room, many of us, uh, perhaps are not seeing someone on the Jericho Road. Like our life doesn't feel like we're on that road. Mine doesn't. And so I would argue that for us to respond when there's needs, we have to kind of position ourselves in such a way that we would be able to. Because I really believe that that if any of us um, were on the road, I would like to think, even despite all the, the, the reasons that we may would not, that I've counted that those two gentlemen didn't, I would like to think that if I was headed home today and someone, or some, let's narrow the focus. We're talking about orphan care here. Let's talk about foster children. Let's say this afternoon, you're at home, it's Sunday afternoon, you're relaxing and, and some kids show up at your door and they obviously look like they need help. Four-year-old, seven-year-old, and a nine-year-old sibling group. They look like they haven't showered in days. They look hungry. And they show up and they knock on your door and they say, hey, um, I, we need help. Uh, something happened to my mom and I, I don't know who my dad is. And you start asking questions and like, they need your help. I would like to think, all of us in here, like, of course we would, we would help. The, the problem is that's never happened to me. Kids who, who are in the foster care system, uh, orphans who are across the, 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 the globe, they're not right in front of us. If we live our life in such a way that's like, well, I would respond. When I see a need, I'll respond. But, but it doesn't happen often because of our daily rhythms. And I would, I would argue that we really have to um, put ourselves, dads, we have to put our families in position of service to those who need help. And it's gonna look different for everyone. But life is busy. Work is demanding. Sports take a lot of time among our families, those with kids. And it seems as though, you know, my parents have entered into near retirement age. I don't, and I've spent some time this past week with a gentleman that's been very invaluable to my life and, and how I think about things as a believer. And I spent some time with him hunting a few days. And uh, he said, he's as busy as ever. He's retired. <laughs> and so I don't know that there's ever a feeling that we're going to one day 
arrive. We probably think we do when we're younger. We think, well, I'll, one day I'll have more time for that. But, but we find ways to fill our time up. And none of that stuff's bad. All the stuff I just listed is, I, I, it's great to, you know, where you're at be on mission. If you've got sports this afternoon, I'm headed to Greer. If my kids have a soccer game this afternoon. It takes a lot of effort for me to go talk to the gentleman over here that may not know Jesus and talk to him and, get, and build a relationship with where God's positioned me this afternoon. Because everything in me, after, after preaching here twice and I haven't seen my wife and I've been away from my kids some this week, like, I, I just want to watch their game. But maybe there's a moment where I could find where the Lord would say, go talk to that person. Go love on somebody. Go encourage somebody. And I, I want to say this about the bystander syndrome, because I think that's what's, what happens sometimes. The foster care system is a problem, and we live in, a, in a, a country that has largely taken it and kind of put it over here. It's like its own thing. So like the scenario I gave you all ago of these, of these kids who need help, like they're real people. Like there's, there's a couple hundred of them in your county. Like there really are kids who need someone to stand in the gap. There's some who are available to be adopted. There's many who are, who are not in that place. And it's messy. The system is messy. No one's ever dealt with DSS and thought, well, that was a seamless, easy process. I mean, it, I've not heard it. I've been in this space for, for 15 years, really my whole life in some ways, growing up into it. And no one's ever said that, <laughs> right? It's, it's messy. It's complicated. And so, like, as Christians, and here's the thing, not all of us are called. Foster, foster care and adoption is very much a calling. This message today, I think for, for several years, a while back, when it started to become more of a thing and Christian Alliance for Orphans was organized and there started to be this spotlight, I think, I think somewhere along the way they got it wrong. They would say, all right, they would kind of have a message like this, we would guilt people in and then we would tell them the need and then we would encourage everybody to come and then a year later, like, half the people aren't even doing it, they're... They're frustrated, they, didn't, they got into something they didn't realize, and so that's not what today is about. It's not to say that all of you need to go foster adopt. In fact, many of you might not need to or, or aren't called to, but I believe that someone, through simply having a focus on this and putting it in front of God's people, the Holy Spirit has already been working long before I got up here to preach. Don't run from it. Don't run from it. Connie Maxwell Children's Ministries is a licensing agency. Today was not about Connie Maxwell. I would love to talk about Connie Maxwell. I love talking, there's almost nothing else I love talking about more, but today was more about what does the scripture say? And we wanted to be very focused. Jeff had asked me about being very focused on the opportunities around you. And some, I believe God has already been working. Please go to the lunch. Don't talk yourself out of it. There's spaces. If, if, it'd be great if we have to turn some people away. Maybe you had something planned. You, you've got a, a play to go, place to go or you've got something, an idea in mind. That's fine. Like it, you're still gonna have opportunities after today. It's not like this is your only shot. There's ways, you know, you can talk to Jeff Pruitt or, or any of the pastors here. They'll help you out. We, we have stuff on our schedules and sometimes we can't get out of it. But if you can, take the next step. Maybe the next step is simply going to lunch. For, for others, the next step may not be like, I need to get foster it, or I need to adopt. It's uh, go to this, we're gonna go to this QR code 
And there's a lot of ways that people can be involved. And part of the message this morning is building an everyone can do something culture in your church. Because I'm convinced that some people, more people would be a part of, of foster care adoption if they didn't feel like I'm gonna enter into something where I'm alone. But if the church, if the church was saying, and I believe this is a church that's saying it by uh, witness of what today is and where the steps they're moving towards increasingly is more of, of one of, hey, we're in this with you. No one in here is doing anything alone. And so we have to set up systems and some infrastructure so that that's the case. Because I believe there's a lot of people who maybe aren't called to foster adopt, but they want to help. Like, I want to help. If I knew the need, I would help. And you know what oftentimes foster parents say is, oh, we're good. <laughs> we're good. I do the same thing. My wife and I both had COVID a few, it's been over a month now, but we were pretty sick for a few days and our kids were tired of eating frozen chicken nuggets. But how many people called out to us and said, hey, what do y'all need? Can we bring anything? No, we're fine. We don't wanna burden people. <laughs> people who genuinely cared for my wife and I wanted to help. Thankfully, one of them just ignored us and brought you know, stuff to our house and we opened the front door and I was like, oh, Mary Beth, she's so sweet. And we were like, thank God. Our kids were like, praise the Lord. We're tired of eating chicken nuggets and pizza. But aren't we so like that? And the foster parents are like, well, I volunteer for this stuff. It's hard and I can't ask for help. No, what if we said, no, we're gonna help you. We've set it up that way. We've set it up that way so that you have help with transportation, with babysitting, so that you can have a strong marriage and, and go on dates with your spouse, so that respite care families can get licensed and maybe help out for times when you really need to go away for a few days. We wanna help your church do this. And today's a great day to start with wherever you're at. So I would encourage you, I'm in front of the QR code, aren't I, on some of these screens. I'm gonna move to the side. But if you wanna take out your phone, you can hold your, your phone up to this on the camera. You don't have to have a special app, I don't think. Um, but you can hold your phone up. Go ahead, you don't, you're not gonna get in trouble. You can hold your phone up. There you go, you can take your camera, you can hold it over that and it should allow something to pop on your screen where you click it and you're just gonna go leave information. This information goes to the church. This isn't like signing up for something Connie Maxwell or giving or none of that. Well, of course, we're, it's okay if you wanna do that, but that's not what today's about. So you can, these are next steps you can take. And there's a lot of options on there. There's a lot of options for ways people can, can help. And, and maybe for many of you here, it's like, man, I don't even know. This is kind of new on my radar. I've not, I've not thought about this much. Um, that's okay. I would just encourage you to think about what your next step can be. It's good to take small steps. You don't have to jump all the way in the deep end if that's not where God's placed you right today. If he's not pricked your heart to do that, take one step. So we're gonna, we're gonna wrap this up. Um, you know, I wonder sometimes in the parable, Jesus was making a clear point to say like, everyone's your neighbor, you're not exempt. You don't just get to choose who your neighbors are by, based on what they look like or what your schedule requires. But what if in this parable, what if, what if the Levi would have stopped? The Levite. And then what if the other would have stopped? And then they're all helping each other together. And it's a collective effort. The church can do that. The church can do that. William Carey said this. Oh, by the way, we're in the back. Uh, we're gonna wrap this up. We're in the back. Uh, we've got a, a display. And so anything, if you weren't able to get the QR code or, or if you just have trouble with that stuff, you don't wanna deal with it, we, we've got other things you can take and questions you can respond to um, if you've got any, uh, if, you're, if you're not able to make the lunch. Um, but I love, I love how William Carey framed this. And he was a Baptist missionary. He lived in the late 1700s. He was from Britain. He was 
at the turn of the 19th century, and he was boarding a ship to go to India to be a missionary. And a friend asked him, are you sure you want to go through with this? You sure you want to leave Britain and familiarity and comfort and go give your life to people in a country that you don't know that much about, probably never return? And Kerry responded this way, and I think it's so, so good. He said, I'll go down into the pit itself if you will hold the rope. You know, our house parents at Connie Maxwell and our five locations, our, our foster parents, we have about 45 across the Midlands and upstate that we work with. They've, God's called them to go down into what can feel like a pit sometimes. Now, there are tremendous joys. I could speak for for hours of testimonies of like the tremendous joys of care, watching these families care for these kids and, and what God is doing through that. But it's not always easy either. It can be really hard to care for a kid who's had childhood trauma and the way that impacts them. But some of us, God's called to go into the pit, front lines. And for those who, who aren't sure about that yet or maybe aren't called to do that, we're called to hold the rope and we need to hold the rope really well. So wherever you're at on that, let's hold the rope really well. Let's pray.